In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There is nothing new under the sun. I'm sure you've heard this before. Solomon said it. He wrote it under inspiration of the Holy Spirit long ago. And what he's talking about there in Ecclesiastes is not about the new Tesla. He's not talking about the new iPhone. He's not talking about inventions, but what he is talking about is human nature, the proclivity, the inclination of fallen, sinful man's natural inclination to fear, love, and trust in things other than God. Man's natural inclination to heed anything else, any other word but the Scripture. Man's natural inclination... To, to worship the creation and not the creator. That there is nothing new under the sun. The false teachings, the idols which man creates in his heart, in his mind, is nothing new. And I see a connection then between the epistle text which we have today, not just the text but the whole epistle that Paul writes to the Thessalonians, that there's a connection between the things which were going on then, the false teaching, the idols that people worshipped and believed in, then in Thessalonica, and still today, now in America, that there was false teachers in the name of Jesus, then in Thessalonica, just like today, preaching a word contrary to that which Jesus preached, that which the apostles whom he appointed to be his ambassadors, contrary to what they preached as well. Many people, they began to worry then and were confused. So today I want to preach not on the entirety of the book of Thessalonians, but introduce it and kind of do a brief overview, talking about some of the issues that were going on then, and then connect them to today, and then positively assert what the Scriptures teach. At this letter, it's a letter from St. Paul to the church in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, it's a city, it's a port city. It hasn't moved, it's still there today. And like many port cities, it's very important for Commerce. There's a lot of different people with a lot of different thoughts and a lot of different philosophies flood the city, and it's kind of like a melting pot, if you will. And it's a similar thing then that's going on there, even whenever Paul goes through there. Now, Paul goes through there on his second missionary journey. You can go read about it in Acts 17, that he and Timothy and Silas and Silvanus, those teachers of the word, They went through Thessalonica, and they began to teach. They began to preach. They preached, certainly, Christ crucified, about the coming Messiah that was promised long ago, all the way back in Genesis, about the promised seed, who would be later revealed to be born of a virgin. They preached that Christ, who was the Lamb of God, who took away the sins of the world, And he brought those sins and paid for them at his cross by the shedding of 
his blood, that they preach the cross, Christ crucified, which is foolishness, which is folly to the world, but is the wisdom of God. And despite that they were in Thessalonica, where there was a Greco-Roman sort of culture, there's also Jews there, they preached this Christ. They preached this word which gives faith, which forgives, forgives sins on account of Christ, his blood. So what, what's going on there in Thessalonica? Well, we know that they're standing firm in the faith, that Paul talks about the greatness of their faith, not because they themselves are great, but they're holding fast to that fast to that free gift which God gave them through his word. Even in the midst of persecution, that they stood firm in that which God has given them, that they fear, love, and trust in him above all things. Thus, they were examples of faith. They were examples also, then, of love. The faith that they had, it was like a good tree that produced good fruit. However, they needed some instruction. Paul ends up writing this letter to them on the basis of what Timothy later told him, that Paul left and Timothy joined back up with him, that Timothy reported not only the greatness of their faith and how they're standing firm, but also that some are confused, that there's a false teacher and people are believing false things, particularly concerning the second coming of Christ. That a false teacher who's teaching probably in the name of Jesus and people who are naturally sinners and the hearts like an idol factory are believing falsely concerning the second coming of Christ. Thus some were unsure, they were confused, they were worried. And others were just indifferent about the whole thing, thinking it's already occurred so they can just eat, drink, and be merry. So his letter then has really four parts. The first and the last part, the fourth part, is an introduction. It's a blessing and an encouragement, and then that last part is a conclusion and a blessing, but it's the middle two that I see great parallel with things that are going on today in America. And that second part is this. Paul warns them of the dangers of living like the heathen. Living like faith doesn't matter, like the cross doesn't matter, like the second coming doesn't matter. And that third part, he teaches, and it's the part that we get today in our epistle, he teaches a proper understanding of the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. So I want to identify a handful of things that I see as great parallel to the things that are going on there. There's nothing new under the sun. Parallel between what's going on there and what's going on now. And the first one that I want to deal with, all these in brief, is this, that there are some people who in the name of Jesus claim to have some special revelation outside the scriptures that they know 
the time and the hour and the day when Christ will return. This is a simple and easy thing to dispel and rebuke. Why? Because Jesus makes it abundantly clear. No one knows the day or the hour. He says in Matthew 24, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven know, but only his Father. Thus it's easy to dispel teachers who teach such things, not to mention that they've been teaching that they've known the day and the hour for about a hundred something years now, and it continues not come true. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this, and maybe it's a little bit more subtle, but Paul talks about it as though it does concern the end times, and that is this, that people are indifferent in the way in which they live their life. They're indifferent to the second coming, then they're indifferent to today. That the life of a Christian is to be lived each day to and for the Lord. That we live in light of not only what Christ has done, coming down and assuming human flesh, carrying and bearing our sins, taking them to the cross, we not only live in light of that, but we also live in light of his return. That's what he says he will do. That we live as people who have purpose. That every Christian is placed and called into a vocation in life. That we have a holy calling to live exactly where Christ has placed us. Not only in light of what has happened, but also in what will occur. That as husbands and wives, fathers and mothers and workers and bosses and citizens were called to live a life of purpose and meaning, a life and faith and love towards our neighbor. The third thing I, I, I want to talk about is that there's a misunderstanding that some people in the name of Jesus claim that in the end all people go to heaven, regardless of faith, regardless of how they live in life, they preach what's called universalism. And let's be clear, there is universal grace. Christ did, in fact, die for the sins of the whole world. It would have been amazing enough if Christ would have died for the sins and redeemed his own people. But he didn't just redeem his own people. He redeemed the, the whole world, all mankind, from embryo all the way to the deathbed, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity and tongue, whatever they speak, he died for their sins. However, that free gift that he has accomplished by his blood, many today reject it. It's like a Amazon package. It's been paid for. It's been delivered through the preaching of his word, and now it's sitting on their laps and in their ears, and what do they do? They reject it. They reject that free gift of grace. Thus, they will and are still currently bearing the wrath of God. That in the end, they, they do tempt still today, right now, bear the wrath of God so that they would know about the end of their ways, the end of their rejection of that 
free gift, that it's but a little picture, a foretaste of what is to come. As we as Christians who live in the great joy and peace in the gospel, knowing that our sins are forgiven, and that we know Christians who we have fellowship with, and that we can confide in and comfort one another and live in community, we have a foretaste of that heavenly kingdom. They have a foretaste of hell. That hell is not where Jesus and God is not, but it's where his mercy and his compassion are absent. Heaven is where there is no, no sin and the consequences of it, but just joy and gladness, no sadness. Hell is the opposite of that. It is God's presence, his wrathful anger against sin. Thus we who have faith, now have a foretaste of that heavenly splendor to come. And the fourth and fifth thing, which are, tend to be kind of tied together, depending on who you talk to, there's a lot of flavors. It's like Baskin-Robbins in that way. There's a lot of flavors and how people misunderstand this. But the fourth thing is this, is that people think and believe and teach that Jerusalem, the city, needs to be restored, that the Jews need to rebuild the temple in order for Jesus to return. I know there's things going on in Israel right now, and I see this flooded all over Facebook. I don't know if you guys have about the necessity of the temple to re be rebuilt. And I can tell you this is not true. And the reason why this occurs and people think this is because of a, a biblical literacy issue. Whenever they read the word Jerusalem or the word Israel, especially in Paul's letter to the Galatians, they read it to mean a literal geographical Israel. But Paul, whenever he talks about these things, sometimes he speaks geographically, but there he's talking about the household of faith. That who is the true Israel? It is Christ. And all those then who are grafted, are connected to the true Israel, Jesus, therefore are a part of the household of faith. That it's not geography that Paul talks about, but faith. He's talking about you. And the fifth one, like I said, tends to be connected to the fourth. But the fifth one is this, that people think they're waiting for a literal thousand-year reign, that Jesus will come back and there will be literally a thousand years. And the reason why, this, why they believe this, again, is a basic, how do you want to say, context issue of what they read in the Scriptures. Now, whenever St. John writes and records for us in the book of Revelation that there's going to be a thousand-year reign, he's not talking about a literal thousand years, but in the context of the book of Revelation, which is an apocalyptic book, that's what Revelation means, it's a book of great imagery, that he's given a vision to see not only his return, but also the heavenly kingdom. Thus, that thousand years that he's talking about is imagery for now. It is for today that the end times have been going on, not for a thousand years, but 
2,000 years. That since Christ was crucified, died, was buried, he was resurrected, and ascended at the right hand of the Father, he has been ruling from the right hand of the Father. That all authority has been given to him, both on heaven and on earth. That he rules at the right hand of the Father for the goodness and for the sake of you, or his church. That this time that we live in, we live now underneath his grace. And now is the time of patience and God's favor as he sends forth laborers, sends forth his people to proclaim his excellencies, to proclaim his word, his gospel message that Christ came and did not die but for his own people but for the whole world, for you. This is the time to proclaim that word, to bring all of the people into the fold. That is the thousand years. And these are the things, these five things, though there's more and we could probably, I could probably preach on each one for 30 minutes if you'd like and talk about them, but dealing with them in brief, I want to now positively assert some things that God makes clear and certain regarding his second coming. Because Paul says today that this is supposed to be an encouragement. It's to be a comfort to those who are in him. But what are those positive things, those clear teachings? Well, Jesus will come again. And he will come again like a thief in the night. Just as the bridegroom came to the virgins at night, Paul says he will come like a thief in the night. That the workers will be going to work, the mothers will be taking care of their children, the students will be doing their homework, and then all of a sudden, it will happen. That no one knows when the thief will come in the night. No one knows except for the Father, not even angels, not even any preacher today, despite if they use the name Jesus or if they have the right name or they're nice guys, they do not know the time or the hour. And when he returns, there will be a judgment. There will be a judgment of both the living and the dead, that all people will be raised, not just believers, but also unbelievers. And those who have cried out to him, those who have heard his word and have faith and repent of their sins and proclaim his name, confess his name to other people, whom Jesus then also confessed before his Father in heaven, he will bring those people, both whom he resurrected and those who are still alive, he will bring them together with him to the heavenly banquet, to heaven. And there will be an all-consuming fire over the face of the earth, and the Lord will create a new heaven and a new earth. And he has prepared then for us, where he's bringing us in heaven, many mansions. That is what is to occur. And today then, today is his grace. It is his favor. It's the time of his patience and his love, sending forth his word to us to give us faith in the forgiveness of sins which he's accomplished in his blood, that we are to comfort one another, encourage one another with this gospel, with this word that is the power of God, to make us wise unto salvation, 
And we're to have this word in our hearts and in our minds and upon our lips as we speak it to one another. As we speak it to those who don't know him. Whomever it is you're thinking about who doesn't know him, today is the day to confess and proclaim that gospel. Confess and proclaim his excellency. That they might too know him. That they might too know him as their Lord. As we who do know him who confess his name, who confess our sins to him, and are forgiven freely on account of his blood, we then have a confident and sure hope, not only of what he has done, but also what he will do. That our hope will eventually be swallowed up by sight. Sight of him returning just as he left on a cloud. With his hands up, his pierced hands still bearing the wounds, flesh and blood, as he greets us, as he welcomes us to that eternal banquet. God grants us this sure and confident hope that we would be ever watchful for his return. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.